I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Teresa Barrera. She's the Global Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Publicis Sapient. And today on the program, we talk about her path to becoming CMO at Publicis Sapient, which tracked through uh, technology and professional services companies like IBM, Accenture, and Deloitte prior to joining Publicis. We talk about her new internship program that she's launching and why she's so excited about it, as well as what the role of a marketer's leader is in driving diversity inside the organization and through diversity and inclusion. And we obviously talk on business transformation, which is what Publicis Sapient is driving for many of their clients, as well as an example that she uses from McDonald's. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Teresa Barrera. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. I'm very delighted to be here with you today. I'm excited to learn uh, quite a bit more about Publicis Sapient. But before we get to the business side of the equation, um, I hear that you, uh, I believe, grew up in Portugal and immigrated to the U.S. Do I have that right? That's absolutely right. I uh, grew up in the northern part of Portugal and immigrated to the United States at about age 16 and a half. What brought you to the U.S.? So a couple of reasons. One was family. 
I had a lot of family that lived in the United States. Matter of fact, my grandfather, before he married my grandmother, he had emigrated to the United States at a young age. Uh, so I always had a lot of relatives that lived here. And when I was uh, 12 years old, my um, father passed away. And my mother, after a couple of years, decided that uh, it would probably be best for us to immigrate and to reunite with her family. A lot of her siblings, all her siblings, matter of fact, they lived in the United States. She was the only one that stayed behind with my grandmother. So that was one reason. The other reason was actually, at the time, I had aspirations to become a doctor. And Portugal, back then, really only had a couple universities, uh, medical schools. And it was very difficult to pursue a medical career. So coming to America and going to university here for the first year, or actually applying from here to university in Portugal, was much simpler because I would apply as a foreign student. And Portugal at the time was giving opportunities for children of immigrants to return to Portugal. So I would only have to take a language exam versus taking the standardized exam to enter university. So that obviously would have been much easier for me. So those two reasons combined a lot is here. And history will tell you that I never went back to Portugal and I never pursued a medical career. Right. Well, I was going to say, you are now the CMO at Publicis Sapient. What was the path from doctor aspirations into marketing? My path wasn't very linear or frankly predetermined, meaning as I, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a CMO or even working in marketing. And as I just said, my aspirations were to have a career in being a doctor. You know, when I was a kid, my mother, uh, she had a stronger believer in education. And she used to say to me, you have to go to school, study really hard. And when you get older, you can either become a doctor or a lawyer. And if you can't do either, then you should work in a bank. So as planned, when I started university, I was a pre-med major. But after taking organic chemistry my sophomore year, I decided this was not going to be a good career choice for me. So after university, I ended up going to business school and really was there that I was introduced to marketing. And I joined IBM right after business school and spent 10 wonderful and exciting years at IBM working many parts of the business and traveling to different countries and regions. And I was really fortunate to work in all aspects of marketing, from product marketing to brand, industry, alliance, and solution marketing. And frankly, it was the best learning ground for any young and motivated and curious person. And really, that's how my career began. And up leaving IBM after 10 very successful years, not because I was unhappy, but because I felt I should try something new at the time. And I went to a, a software startup to build their brand, define and create a new market space uh, for the company. And while I was there, I was then uh, recruited by an ex-colleague to join Accenture. And to be honest, I was a bit hesitant to join a consulting and a service organization at that time, because I believe marketing at Accenture and all service companies were still in the journey to reach adulthood. But the offer and the opportunity was attractive. And I thought I would stay there for two to three years. And well, it turned out into 13 years. 
but it was a great experience. Accenture was a great place to put my marketing knowledge to practice, but also learn leadership skills, to learn how to prioritize, and mostly to, to learn how to lead by influence and build high-performance teams. I left Accenture and I joined Deloitte as their first chief marketing officer for Deloitte Consulting. It was a phenomenal opportunity to rebuild the marketing function into a modern organization that was really fit for purpose and growth. And then I left Deloitte and I joined a publicist sapien three years ago. And the last three years has probably been one of the most fun and impactful I've had in my career. That's an amazing journey. And um, I would not worry about organic chemistry. I've heard that that weeds out everyone. (laughs) (laughs) You really have to love medicine to take that. I think so. I went to a, like a, a tech school and uh, a lot of friends took organic chemistry and that, that was definitely the weed out course in my university. It's amazing. You starting at IBM you know, and, and then Accenture, you spent quite a bit of years at both places. Just curious, like you made the switch to services side and you said, you know, you thought that at that point in time they were still developing themselves and things like that. And you, you've stayed in services since. What, what is it about services? do you think keeps you there? In service companies, unlike product companies, the way you market is different because you don't have a tangible product. So content becomes king and queen. So you have to understand, first of all, you have to understand the industries that you tend to market very well, understand those issues in those industries, and then go to market with more of a content-led and issues-based a marketing strategy versus a product-based marketing strategy. And I do in some ways find it's a, it's a sophisticated way of marketing. And that does require in some ways a better knowledge of those industries and those customers that you tend to go after. But there's a lot of things though. I mean, I do think at the end of the day in product marketing, the service, the elements are the basics are the same. So I joined Accenture to bring the product marketing concepts that I learned early on at IBM, which are fundamental. In some ways, that's what I really learned how to do through marketing. And join Accenture was to really bring that sort of mindset into the marketing organization. But when you combine both, right, take that sort of the product mindset how do you think of how you bring a product to market and bring it to a service organization where you go to market around that content and the issues, I think is a phenomenal combination. I'm always fascinated. I started my career in services marketing too, so I'm a little bit biased, but I always thought to myself, like you said, which is like you're selling the intangible, right? You're almost in many ways selling an idea of what could be done. And it seems like um, it's all the same fundamentals of marketing but I've always believed that if you can if you can sell people on something that doesn't really exist yet today, <laughs> selling a product's not going to be that hard. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm biased, though. No, you are, but you're obviously right because you're selling also people in a service company. And if you think you have to sell content, and telling selling content is selling stories, and it is in some ways a more you can think about it. It is a much more aspiration way of marketing because people don't get up in the morning or and say, I need this product. 
especially in business to business, right? In con- business to consumer is different. You do get up in the morning and say, I, I'm, I'm out of shampoo. I have to go get shampoo or what have you. But in business to business, most clients, they get up in the morning and they think this is the issue I'm trying to solve. This is the challenge I'm trying to solve. That's the way they think. So you, you have that conversation. So the content can enable you and marking the issues versus marking the product. I know you were recently named a bronze Stevie Award winner for your achievement in management. And I was curious what your experience or lessons you've learned as a, as a top business leader and a woman. And if you had any advice for folks that may kind of sit in your shoes or in peers in other organizations. I just went through my journey. I've had a, I think, a, a, a fun and exciting journey in working at these various companies. But throughout this journey, I think I have learned, I have unlearned, and I, I have relearned. And if I, when I think back from where I started, the things that, you know, if, even going back to business schools, we talked about then and how do we apply that today? And some of, some of the things we learned, we to say, you know what, that's probably not as relevant anymore. So I do encourage people to think about that. To, to, you have to constantly learn but you have to also unlearn and you have to relearn and I think I have all done all that through my journey and I think this experience has taught me to to be brave to be in, innovative and to really embrace and welcome change and change has actually been one of the things constant through my career I always look for opportunities where I can I can make a change I can uh, and also can innovate or evolve or reinvigorate uh, those are the things that always excited me being in this, you know, either by going to a different company or in the same company, looking for opportunities inside that company. And as a leader, I think I have learned to be open, to be humble and be vulnerable with my team. And I think as a woman in the tech industry, one of the things that big lessons for me has to to learn how to be myself and don't try to fit into someone else's box or some preconceived mold that does not fit who I am or see myself in. And to be honest, that's something that you know you'll learn over time. And perhaps in my early career, I tried to fit more into a mold. And as you mature throughout your career and you realize that being yourself, bringing your best self to work, it is better for you, it's better for the company, for the product or service you're trying to bring to market and because it, and you just more your authentic self. So that would be, I think, one advice that would be give to young people or anybody in a leadership role, regardless if it's marketing or marketing or not, or a different uh, function, to try to be who we are and, and show up as our true selves. It's good advice. And sometimes it's hard to do, right? To bring bring your full self to work, depending on what the issues are you might be wrestling with, even in your own your own life um, or your own background. But uh, I think it's really good advice that you're giving. Yes. And I think especially, you know, we started the conversation, you asked me as an immigrant, it can be sometimes more difficult because you don't want to be the person that stands out, right? I came to America, and I still have an accent. I'm sure you noticed that, and your listeners will notice that. And obviously, 
I can't, you know, when you learn English at a, a over Asia or any language, obviously you're going to have an accent. So I tried really hard early in my career. But what I realized is that actually it's this is part of who I am. And I shouldn't have to try to hide that. And as I was saying, being an immigrant, you sometimes feel that you want to fit into this box, right? So you try to hide a little bit and push back down a little bit of your culture of where you are. And I have learned that it is actually not a good thing and didn't serve me well. I thought it would serve me well not to show up as what I thought, the way my colleagues are and then and the way they speak, the way they talk. And I've learned throughout my career that actually, it, you know, it takes away from me, but also takes away from my creativity. It's not, as I said, it's not good for me and it's not good for the company. So those are, I think, the things that you learn uh, with as you with as you become more confident in yourself, and especially and also more confident in your role and your position. And then, uh, you know, you become more open and more vulnerable, and again, uh, become your best self. Thank you for sharing, and I hundred percent agree. I think everybody can identify with what you're describing. Like, there's always something in each of us that we're trying to hide or put in a box instead of embracing it. And to your point, embracing who you are can help you be more creative, can help you be more, bring your best to everything that you try to do. Speaking of helping others, I I know that you've launched recently a new internship program uh, within marketing, I believe, at Publicis Sapient. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and who you're trying to help with that internship program? Yes, and I'm super excited about this program. We launched it, our internship program yesterday, and we welcomed 120 students to join the company in North America. And for my team, the marketing team, we had nine amazing students uh, joining the marketing team for our summer internship program. I am very passionate about this program because it's very personal to me because of my own experiences growing up. I grew up in a small village in the northern part of Portugal. It's a rural and agricultural community. And growing up, I wasn't exposed to many uh, professional careers and certainly not to marketing, right? You know, uh, very traditional careers to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a banker. But I didn't even know marketing existed. So I wanted to create the, this internship program to provide students from diverse backgrounds exposure to marketing, to give them the visibility into the marketing profession and to show them possibilities of a career in marketing. So 90% of our interns are first-generation college students and from many, uh, and many of them from immigrant backgrounds, from parents like mine that immigrated to the United States. So the idea and goal for this internship program is to give this young and talented students visibility to marketing. You know, uh, they'll have access to my leadership team to help them with professional development and, and to give them career advice. And they'll be learning by doing. And ultimately, the goal, as I said, is to give them opportunities that might not have and when they are growing up in a household, a family where our first generation uh, going to college, you know, where their perhaps parents or relatives or neighbors 
they might not be working in marketing. So I am very excited for this reason. And I hope, and I'm hopeful that one or maybe all of them interns uh, will go on to becoming a CMO one day. <laughs> that would be amazing. I applaud your efforts. I mean, that's that's a big achievement to have an internship program like that launched. To, to your point, have 90% that are first-generation college students. That's fantastic. We are very deliberate about that, what type of students we wanted from backgrounds and you know, interviewed a lot of interns. And that was important for me, important for the team that we gave these uh, young men and women uh, the opportunity. Brings me to another thought that we've we've covered on this podcast with a couple other guests recently. Um, in, in essence, like I, I remember the chief brand officer at USAA and the founder of, of a tech company, Holler, which for those that don't know, or you may not know, Teresa, too, like they do all the stickers that you see in Venmo, if you're paying somebody and you can you know, attach a sticker to your payment. So the expressive emojis and things like that as well. So, but both of them in particular, both of them are African-American males um, in leadership positions. And they talk a lot about diversity and inclusion really should not just belong in HR. And it sounds like, you know, this internship program is maybe a, another illustration of how we can think about bringing more diverse skill sets, backgrounds to bear, but I, just curious too, how you think about diversity and inclusion and do you feel like it, it, it is something that should be just permeate throughout the, the business? Totally agree that it does not, it's not an HR imperative. It's a company strategic imperative and it needs to come from the top and it cannot be led by HR alone uh, in order to be meaningful. I, I do believe uh, for diversity and inclusion to be embraced, it has to be a company-wide initiative. Because when these programs, uh, DNI programs, are driven by HR teams, they are focused on checking a box or achieving a number, a goal. And that, it's important, but it's not enough. Companies do need to set goals and targets so they can measure and be accountable. But to really in achieve and embrace DNI needs to be more than a number or target. And I always think, Alan, in three steps. Uh, one is to have the right talent. You know, you have to hire diversity of thought, you know, diversity of ethnic, ethnicity, diversity of race, and you have to write, hire all types of diversity to inject new ways of working into the company or the team. And at the same time, you reskill and upskill, and upskill existing skills in the team. So to me, that's, that's step one. Have the right talent and the right diverse talent. Then number two is to create a culture where new and existing talent can thrive. Create this environment that allows people to bring their best selves to work, as I just talked about it. An environment where people feel empowered, confident, and safe to experiment and frankly fail. I think this is really important because hiring great talent alone is not sufficient. If you don't have the environment to enable and support the talent, that, that talent might not stay in the company and might get frustrated and leave. Then the third piece is to create an organization structure or an operating model that facilitates and supports the culture and 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. People and can be sustainable and scalable because the structure is important uh, because it enables the culture and values to come to life by putting it into practice and living them every day. So I always think of sort of these three steps, right? You have to have people, you have to have the culture, but then you have to have the organization structure that supports that. And when I think about what I've done with my own team, it's really that. I came on board uh, three years ago. I brought a lot of new talent, people into my team that actually never worked in marketing or even a corporation. Two of my leads, one came from politics and the other person came from publishing. Neither of those, the first time for those two individuals to work in a corporate structure. And it was phenomenal because they brought the new ways of doing things. And what helped is modeling to the rest of the team. You know, when I came on board, I, I had this... Um, I brought the team together and I really wanted them to think of different ways of marketing and how do we bring agility, speed, innovation. And we got together and we talked about it and how to embrace an entrepreneur mindset. So we had all this great conversation and everybody uh, agreed and believed it and embraced it. But then the question is, how do I do it? And you can send people to training. There's a lot of agile methodology workshops you can go to. But then how do I apply it? That's the hardest part because I do believe everybody wants to evolve and people want to learn. But then is how do I do this in my job? And one of the things I find that was the most value is to watch somebody else, is to bring people that have done it in other industries, right? Take industries, like if your example being in politics, it is super agile because every day you got to follow the news and every day you have to be able to pivot quick and you have to be able to, to have that flexibility. So you watch how somebody brings that into their work. And what I notice with the team, they start saying, ha, ah, this is how I can do it. So having, again, that diversity of thought was really important. And then the second thing is to create an environment to give people, as I talked about it, and then my team to say, create that culture. But the last thing that was really important when I think about in my team that we did is we created what we call a pod operating model. We call it the pod model that allow us to lead and engage with openness and agility. And our pod model is a work construct that enables all the marketing functions to work in a very agile way 
to collaborate, innovate, ideate, and solution together inside the pod because we are aligned by function, right? So I have nine leaders. Each one person would lead PR and another person leads content, another person leads industry marketing, you know, analytics and insights and so on and so forth. And you when you think of being organized that way, it can become super silo. But the pod, that's what breaks the silo. And each pod is aligned by an industry. So this pod enables individuals to work in a highly cross-functional way to problem solve together, uh, which is a core part of our culture. So that, to me, is really where organization and the structure, the construct in organization, it's really important because otherwise what companies tend to do, and they all have great intent and positive intent, is they develop our values. This is our our purpose. And those are values and, and they post the values on their conference room, in their walls, in their organizations, and then say to people, we got to live these values. And people want to live those values. But if the organization doesn't allow you to do them, then it's really hard to actually live them and embrace them every day. Agreed. And I really like how you broke that down into talent, culture, and your organizational structure or your operating model. And I haven't really heard about pods before, but to your point, like, makes perfect sense how they can break down the silo barriers and allow people to work at the pace of business, frankly. Exactly. You know, when I was trying to get this idea, I used the analogy of an operating room. If you think of an operating room, people come together from different uh, disciplines in the hospital. So you have a nurse, you have a doctor, you have an anesthesiologist. And they all work together in concert to save the patient. And they know each, each one knows their role. Sometimes they can, the same team works together, but the same nurse can go work with a different surgeon or different anesthesiologist, but they all know their role and they're all focused and in the same goal. And our pod construct is the same. We go to market around, we talked about us issues in the beginning of the conversation, how it's important for a line around those issues. And then when we come together inside that pod is really to solve for the same uh, same thing, whatever, bringing a, enabling a journey, bringing a campaign to market. But that's exactly it. And our pod as individuals that always sit in a pod, others that come in and out depending what we're trying to do. Teresa, to change subjects a bit, still talking about publicists, I'm just curious, what type of work are you doing for clients? I, I'm assuming it's in this like digital business transformation space. And I'm just curious, like what types of transformation are you driving for clients? And frankly, maybe what the impetus to change right this moment is in this kind of precarious state of the world, if you will, coming out of a p- pandemic, but wanting to grow. And it's an interesting time, I can imagine. It is. It's an interesting time. It's probably never been the best time to do digital transformation right now. So all the work we do for our clients is digital business transformation, and we call it DBT. And we call it digital business transformation versus just digital transformation, because frankly, you can't have, in order to really be transformative, business has to be part of it. That's why we call it digital business transformation. And for us, the digital business transformation is not just about doing what I call random acts of digital, but about helping 
established companies transform their business to better serve their customers and to be ever relevant. So we are very clear on what constitutes digital business transformation and we define it, what it means to what something is transformative or something is not transformative. And it just could be great work and amazing work, but it's not means it's transformative work. So we're very clear in that because as a company, when we relaunched three years ago, we were very clear that the work we're going to do is all about helping companies transform their business for the digital age. And of course, to your question, right? What types of transformation are we doing? And it does come in different. And transformation is just not one size fits all. It is much more of a continuum, continuum, if you think about it, where companies can start at different stages based on their existing journey. So one company in this continuum could be at the beginning. Another one could be at the middle. I don't think anyone is at at the end. So working with our clients, we often see three types of transformation. We call it defend, differentiate, and disrupt. And I'll give you a quick highlight of each. So defend is really about incrementalism, doing the same, doing what you're doing, but doing more of the same. And just and that's what a lot of companies have been doing up to now. And then differentiate is about evolving and advancing your existing business. So you are evolving and advancing, but not a radical change. And then disrupt is focused on reimagining your business. It's fundamentally changing the way companies operate and engage with their customers. That's really true transformation. Now, that's where you see less of that, right? You would see probably more companies doing the differentiate and versus disrupt. Like if you think of an example, a company that really disrupt, think about Netflix, what they did when they moved from DVDs to streaming. I think COVID has been the biggest driver and accelerator of change. It really has moved digital transformation to a number one priority for every company across every industry and sector. You know, I mean, from industries and sectors that you never, they were laggards, such as health, education, government. Who would think the education, right? Like overnight, they all had to go online, right? It was, there was no other choice. So we have become a digital economy and society overnight, and there's really no going back. So right now, it's funny because you can't even say doing digital. We are digital, right? There's no other world. We live in a digital world. So everything, like if you are not at some sort of digital presence, then you really, uh, I mean, you cannot, uh, you cannot do business in, in this economy. It's so true. I mean, you think about it, we are completely digital, at least the work that we do, right? (laughs) So (laughs) you gave some great examples um, just to like help illustrate your defend, differentiate and disrupt framework for the types of transformation. I'm just curious if there's any other examples you want to share that come to mind or um, cases that you're you're working on. We work with clients across all industries and sectors, and, and we do different type of work, but we make sure our work, what we do is to really help these companies and 
companies and brands that we love, we grew up with, like McDonald's, to really help them unlock and create value to either, you know, sometimes improve efficiencies, look for new sources of growth, ultimately to enhance the customer experience. So we always think about transformation, real transformation, disruptive transformation should be from the outside in versus the inside out. You should always start there from the eyes of your customer. How do I, what do I'm going to do to really help improve the experience, the value that I am bringing to my customer? And if you start from there, then obviously it's going to impact the way you do your business. So McDonald's is a great example. We fully innovated the entire customer experience from front to back, from the way the customer engages with the menu to the technology required to enable it and the workflow to make the food. So we created a digital platform that allows the customer to order the food from anywhere without impacting the quality or the service. And most importantly, gives the customer a choice how to receive the food. Do I want my food to pick it up at a curbside, to go pick it up at a drive-thru, inside the restaurant, at a subway station, or to be delivered to my lobby in my building? But the important thing, Alan, in this is that how do you do that and maintain the same consistency and quality regardless where the food is being picked up or delivered? So think about French fries. You want those French fries from McDonald's nice and crispy. So you want to get the same crispy French fries at the same temperature for the same amount of time, regardless of the location. Now, this requires integration from the front end to the back end and rethinking the business process along the customer experience and journey. So that's an example where we're talking about a transformation that you are is driven to improve the customer experience, to bring more value to the customer, and frankly, to make fast food even faster. I think that example is really key because to your point, no one wants soggy French fries. That's a, that's a, that's a, 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 a challenge nonetheless to try to figure out how to make that work. And one of my favorite meals is steak frites. Yes. <laughs> I love steak frites. And in this pandemic, I live in Toronto. And Toronto, we have had extended lockdowns. Matter of fact, we just started the re- reopening last Friday. And we're still phase one of the reopening. We're really behind many other cities in, in the US. And so obviously, all the restaurants were closed, right? They just now reopened the patios. To get steak frites delivered, it's hard because, like you said, by the time they get to your house, those French fries do not taste the same. And your steak, and you don't want to warm up your steak. The last thing you want to do is take your steak and then put it in the oven. You want to ruin your steak. So it's, it's difficult, right? right? Managing that process, that's what really, right, that it requires the company to rethink when you cook, how do you cook? What is the right timing, right? So if like with McDonald's, as an example, in the French fries, if I'm picking up the, store, the French fries at a drive-thru, I have to know, knowing when am I there? Am I approaching? How, how far away am I from the drive-thru? So I start cooking the French fries right now. 
I always ask this question. It's the last question I ask most people that come on the show. And I think you're in a unique vantage point with both what you do in, in the business and driving transformation, but just as a, a marketer, having been at a couple different types of businesses in the past and as a CMO. But curious how you think about either the largest opportunity or the biggest threat that's facing marketers today. First of all, I think it's a great time to be in marketing. Perhaps this is the best time. And the reason so, because we have marketing so much over the last decades, today, marketing is not just about telling a story or managing the brand. It is now about transforming the business. And if you think the back into the 90s, when I started doing marketing, marketing used to be like an assembly line, very process oriented. Think about it's like that was the campaign mindset. So we put a lot of campaigns to market. We pushed these campaigns to market. It was a very much push approach. And it was like an assembly line because it was like, you know, you, you move it from here to here to here, and then you push the campaign and you go through the whole process again. And then with the rise of digital and the proliferation of channels and with data, marketing has become more like a trading room floor where decisions get made in real time and using real-time data. And that's been great for marketing because now they can make those decisions not based on intuition, but based on real data. And they can be more agile in making those decisions. So that's been a great improvement. A lot of marketing teams and companies are still in the 90s. They still haven't moved to that. But what I think... The next phase of marketing, which is now where we're going, it's going to become more like what I call a lab, where everything is much more experimental and we'll keep adding and changing to the formula. If you'd like to think a chemistry lab, we're going to be more experimenting and adding different chemicals and creating different things in real time. And I think this presents a phenomenal opportunity for marketeers that not just want to be the custodians of the brand, but to help them reinvent the company and the business. And this goes back to what we talked about in the beginning about product, having a product marketing versus service marketing, marketing a product, and marketing a service. And what I think a lot of us know need to. And I tell my team this every day. Actually, I tell them the things they should learn and how to do is to how to embrace a strategic mindset. But doing that in some ways is embracing like a product mindset, not a product mindset. Let me just explain. Not how to push a product to market, but how to build one. Start think about a software product. The process of software product development is very iterative. It's also, and it's constantly evolving. Think about the products we love, like your iPhone. You get new versions, new updates every year. And the product keeps evolving, keeps, but it's never finished. So if you think about this idea, right, where you live in a constant state of beta. So your campaign is never finished. It's constantly evolving. So that one area that I tell constantly to say, think adding the sort of that mindset, 
their way of thinking, how we develop software products and bring that into your work, right? Now, sometimes this for a designer, think about it, it's very challenging and daunting to say, wait, I can't just put a design out in the world that's not finished. <laughs> I spend so much time thinking about my ad is not finished. No, because you can continue, put it out there. You see how people engage with it. And then you get feedback and you continue to add to it. Versus spending so much time on something to make it perfect that it might only last a couple of minutes in the market. So that's why I use this concept of a lab. It's very experimental. And I think this is a fantastic opportunity. So for market, for anyone today that wants to go into marketing, I really, really believe it has never been a great time. Now, but marketing also, for people do not embrace sort of this new way of, of thinking. And if you're a marketing and a CMO today, your job can just not be to manage the brand. You have to think about yourself as working across the company. Another important skill that marketeers need to develop is how you become like chief collaborator officer. You got to bring all the other functions together. And that is why I think it's going to be the biggest opportunity. And I think for CMOs, where you're going to see their role becomes way more strategic than ever. 100% agree with you. And I, I like the vision and the, the evolution that you laid out too. Um, and this notion of a lab, uh, I think it's on point. And the chief collaboration officer, for sure. It's a theme that I could pull out across a number of, of podcast interview episodes um, as well, and especially those that are doing it well. Teresa, thank you so much for spending some time with us, sharing your story and your insights. It's been fantastic. It was fun. And thank you for having me. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.